0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com slash Weekly Tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Barrett, who's an associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the author of a recent book entitled Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. Today we talk about the centrality of the doctrine of the Trinity in Christian life. Dr. Barrett is also the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine, where he also hosts the Credo podcast talking with fellow theologians about the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. He's also the author of numerous books, including None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get going, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. What kind of drew you into studying theology, studying specifically the doctrine of God and doctrine of the Trinity, and kind of how how you got to where you are now?
1: Well, uh, it's a a bit of a fascinating story, and I actually tell a little bit of this story in my previous book, None Greater. I was a first-year student. In college, and had been a Christian for many years, uh, had read through my Bible many times, but had never really learned theology. And, you know, like many young people, probably thought I knew a lot, uh, only to find out I knew very little. And that all occurred to me when I met my future wife. She played uh, a very instrumental role. Uh, she also was starting college. We were at Biola University. In Los Angeles together, and we had just met, and uh, she started to ask me hard questions that she was wrestling through in her theology classes on um, the problem of evil, the doctrine of God, and so on, and I had no idea. <laughs> Not exactly, um, you know, for, for those guys out there that are trying to uh, impress a girl they want to, to keep dating. It's not not exactly an encouraging story. (laughs) But she was instrumental. Uh, The Lord used her, and uh, she gave me a copy of Augustine's Confessions. And that was one of the first theological books I I ever read. And I read it uh, over the summer. And I remember walking away thinking, what have I been missing out on uh, because I was never taught any of this. you know, in Augustine's confessions, he begins with that beautiful statement where he is reflecting on on who God is. And I had just never heard God talked about this way. Uh, describing everything from God's omnipotence, uh, to his immutability, to his imminence and loving kindness. It, it was just so foreign to me. And so that was really one of the first uh, entry points for me, And it wasn't long after that, uh, I, well, I was very poor, I had no money. (laughs) And I remember coming across uh, an abandoned copy of Calvin's Institutes, uh, just outside the cafeteria, I kind of kept my eye on it week after week. And after about a month, I thought, this copy is so beat up and it's been here so long. I don't think the owner's coming back. (laughs) And so I picked it up and it was one volume. So it was really thick. Went back to my dorm room at the time and started reading through it. I remember getting some odd questions like, why are you reading that? (laughs) But afterwards, like Augustine's Confessions, I realized how little I knew and how much I wanted to understand, and the Lord used that as well. I think at that point I realized this is what I want to spend my life on.
0: Yeah. I know for myself, when I was kind of, my call into ministry in some sense was interesting because I became a believer and then I thought I knew everything. Even though I really hadn't been a Christian that long, I just assumed I did. I was uh, incredibly arrogant. And it wasn't until seminary that I was, I was like, Oh, yeah, I'll go and be able to pastor a church and all this, but maybe I should go to seminary and learn something. And when I was at seminary, it was like a fire hose. And I was like, I have no idea. I've never heard these terms. I've never heard of these people. Um, and so it was extremely humbling. And I really thank the Lord for that. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners who may be coming to this type of conversation are going, Yeah, I know, I know about the Trinity or yeah, I know about the doctrine of the God. And in that sense that there may be certain knowledge. I mean, obviously, as you read the scriptures, you see this understanding of the triune nature of God. But sometimes I think, maybe even our language betrays us. We try to illustrate. I use this with my students, like, what are some of the bad illustrations you've heard of the Trinity before? But all of this is undergirded in understanding not only systematic theology, historical theology, philosophical theology. We talked a little bit, uh, for a listener's sake, before we jumped on the podcast of the relationship of these things. And so I wanted to have you kind of help listeners understand, kind of get our bearings in terms of when we talk about theology, there are these subdisciplines of historical theology, philosophical theology, systematic theology, and all of these different types help us to understand how these various fields, but even questions of like philosophy proper, help us to kind of understand not only theology, but specifically in terms of the Trinity.
1: Well, this is one of the reasons why I love systematic theology so much. Biblical theology is wonderful, and and it's indispensable in one sense, because uh, we need to understand the story uh, of the Bible from beginning to end, and where we are in that story. We need to understand how that story points to and culminates in Jesus Christ, of course, and the gospel. However, and this really comes out of the story I just shared about my own life. I mean, I, I had read my Bible for many years. I could tell you where to read about Moses. I could tell you where to find Paul's epistles and and so on and so on. Um, And I could probably tell you, I could talk to you about many of the biblical themes. However, I think when I started to read someone like an Augustine, I realized very quickly, I'm not sure I have thought theologically before. And that's different from just thinking through the storyline of scripture or tracing its themes Systematic theology is a different enterprise, one that is certainly a friend to biblical theology. Um, They're not enemies, as some people think they are. (laughs) But in systematic theology, we are actually trying to first and foremost contemplate God himself. Uh, In fact, in older centuries and older generations, the word theology simply meant that you were contemplating God as God. Uh, And then as you understood who God is in and of himself, so apart from the world, apart from me, apart from you, apart from what's happening in history, once you started to grasp who this God is as God, well, then you could understand all things in relation to this God. And so this is the beginning of, of the theological task. And part of what that means is, to think theologically, this is a phrase that you know someone like uh, John, the theologian John Webster used. Part of what that means is we are trying to really be serious about that phrase in the Westminster Confession when it says that yes, some things are explicitly set down in Scripture, but but many things come to us more indirectly, or as it says, by good and necessary consequence. And so we are really trying to understand what are those good and necessary consequences and the way the proper way to approach that is out of a out of a posture of faith which immediately should put us in a, in a posture of humility so we don't we don't come to theology out of thinking that we will master this rather we come out of faith and humility but a faith that then seeks to understand uh, I'll never forget that moment when Anselm the uh, medieval scholastic, when he is writing about God and he, he basically puts everything on pause and he says, it's a prayer. He prays, Lord, help me. I know you're incomprehensible, but help me just a little bit <laughs> to understand something of your majesty and the mystery of who you are. And Anselm is convinced that if he does that, that will ultimately lead have many consequences, including joy and thinking about not just the Christian life, but what it means to enjoy God in heaven. So all of this, I could say so much more, but all of this is, is essential to systematic theology, in which you are also then trying to understand how the entire faith corresponds and fits together. We're not just looking at, say, uh, one doctrine, but we're trying to understand how does that doctrine uh, then inform how we think about everything else. So if we're talking about The doctrine of God, what does it mean for God to be righteous and just? Well, that surely has a lot of implications then for how we think about who is Jesus and what is happening at the cross and so much, so much more. You mentioned philosophy. Philosophy is crucial. I I can't emphasize this enough. Philosophy gives us a language, gives us concepts that we so desperately need to articulate so many of these theological truths. Uh, We can talk about this in a minute, but many of our church fathers in the fourth century realized this very quickly when heresy was a threat. And they understood that, well, many of these heretics are quoting the scriptures just like we are, but they don't mean the same thing. And so we we need language, we need concepts, we need terms, we need to be able to think philosophically if we are actually going to articulate and defend the faith in a way that's that's faithful and true to those scriptures.
0: Yeah. One of the things that, I mean, listeners have already seen, and I appreciate really about all of your work, um, is how you're able to connect kind of contemporary issues or contemporary questions to really these kind of ancient documents and ancient texts. You're quoting Anselm, you're, and I think no doubt this is influenced by part of your story of picking up Augustine's Confessions and then going into the Institutes. Why is that important? I think a lot of times contemporary believers think, well, I just need a contemporary book because they understand our moment. They understand the questions we're asking type of thing. But why is it important? And maybe this has to do with some of that humility that you mentioned. Um, but why is it important for contemporary readers to read some of these ancient sources? I've seen some of your book lists for your courses. They're not list, you know, littered with books just from 2020 and 2021, 2022. You're reading ancient text. Why is that so important, especially for those who are studying and preparing for ministry?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So many people don't ask that question and I wish they would. And so thank you. There's a little book, by Athanasius, the church father. Maybe some of the listeners know Athanasius from his defense of the Trinity. And Athanasius wrote a little book called On the Incarnation. But one of our favorites of recent Christian passes, is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote just as a short forward or preface to Athanasius' book on the Incarnation. And the reason I mention this is because Lewis is so profound. He does two things. Uh, first of all, he says, well, first of all, he gives a recommendation, uh, which I think both of us will agree with. He said, uh, you know, if you, if you pick up a new book or a book that's been, you know, written by a modern, a modern person. So in the last two, 300 years, he says, that's fine. But he says for every one of those, you should go back and you should read one, two, maybe three old books, um, from a pre-modern period. Why would we do that? Um, Well, Lewis says that it's not that they did not have blind spots themselves. They did. And uh, I want to make that very clear. You know, we we are not going to the past because we think that there's some perfect golden age uh, that didn't get anything wrong. Um, That would be foolish. Uh, But Lewis says they didn't have the same blind spots as we do today. And I think Lewis is exactly right. I can't tell you how many times I've picked up uh, a commentary from one of the church fathers or a tough bit of theology from uh, a medieval or Reformation theologian. And uh, they are thinking about things. They're asking questions that I have never considered. And that, is, that reveals our own blind spots. But it also then helps us along to consider the ways that we could be an heir or the ways that we need to think theologically much better than we have in the past. Lewis also said something else, though. He said, well, I'll mention two things. He he said, and I think listeners need to hear this, because when you pick up a work from the past, it's not easy. It, I, I don't want to give the impression that, oh, this is going to be easy. Though I think it will be easier than you think. <laughs> but Lewis said, He often found that when he picked up a a tough bit of theology with a a pencil in hand, he often found that it stirred his love for God, his desire for godliness, and his spiritual devotion far more than what he calls many of the contemporary books on spirituality. Why is that the case? Well, uh, I mentioned Augustine's Confessions or Anselm, you know, some of Anselm's work, It's because that they're not approaching theology in the way we do today. They don't approach it as if this is just a a study. No, for them, this is not just about God. They They actually think of themselves as contemplating God and having fellowship with God. So Anselm writes in the form of a prayer, as does Augustine. So this is really, really, really important, I think, for understanding why we should do this. But the last thing that Lewis says is there must be humility. He calls it actually, he, he he looks at the person, again, this is going on in Lewis's own day. He looks at the person who's who doesn't want to read anything prior to their own lifetime or, or recently, you know, last couple hundred years. And Lewis says that's just chronological snobbery. And so uh, Lewis is trained as a medieval expert, and he's thinking here th- as a medieval man, and he says— No, we need to be approaching the past with humility, uh, a faith uh, out of a posture of faith that then seeks to understand. If we reverse that as modernity did, then we first insist on our understanding before we will accept faith. And Lewis has no tolerance
0: for that. Yeah, one of the things, so uh, for listener's sake, for part of that conversation, we also had an extended conversation with Karen Swallow Prior talking about the value of reading old books. And she was bringing up some of the very similar things with Lewis and on the incarnation and things like that. So often when Christians speak about the doctrine of the Trinity, we find sometimes that our language betrays us. In terms of the language we use, and you had mentioned earlier about how sometimes we need this philosophical language or these philosophical categories to express the truth and reality of who God is as he's revealed himself in scripture. So as we're talking about the nature of of God, sometimes I know non-Christians will accuse Christians to say, well, your system doesn't even make sense. You you say one God, but then there's three gods. And then you say that, but there's still one, but no, they are actually three. And that seems really illogical. And it seems incoherent to many um, who haven't really dove into these questions, especially from a theological and philosophical standpoint. So obviously there are dangers on both sides of this debate. So can you help us to kind of develop a language, or not develop, I don't want to say maybe to use your language, of retrieving some of the ancient language to understand uh, the doctrine of the Trinity in better ways?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When we introduce the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, sometimes it can feel that way, as if this is really foreign to us, as if the language we are using is just so contrary to, you know, maybe even what we see in Scripture I would say to folks, though, that it's probably more uh, intuitive than you realize at first. So at first, it can feel strange and foreign. But once you understand the language and understand what it means, it it actually is quite fitting, uh, given what we read in Scripture. So let me see if I can just give you uh, an example of this. In Scripture, very early on, uh, you think of the Shema in the Old Testament, We Israel is told and they confess, this is essential to who they are as a people, that the Lord their God, the Lord is one. Now, sometimes today, when we hear that language, we think, oh, there is only one God, as opposed to a plurality of gods. True, that's true enough, and I think that Uh, Israel would have understood that, especially in the context of their long history of idolatry. However, I think they also would have understood, at least someone like Moses would have, that it also means more than that. Uh, They're not just saying he is the only God, but they're saying something profound about who this God is. Like what? Well, to say that the Lord our God is one is to actually say, he is one. He is a God who uh, is not like us. Uh, We are creatures, and so we are very dependent and needy in every way. Um, To put this philosophically, we are made up of parts. We are compounded of parts, but when it comes to God, well, he, he is not a God like that. Uh, he is a God who is one. Uh, this is one of the reasons why when Scripture speaks of his divine attributes, it goes beyond what it just says of us. You know, uh, you may act in a loving way. I may act in a kind way or a gracious way. But when we talk about God, we don't just say he, he acts in a loving way or he possesses love. We actually say something far more profound he is love. God is love. And we would say something similar about holiness. Well, this is very different. Uh, This is very different than than how we speak of ourselves. And so there's a term that we use to describe this. It's the word simplicity. And even though that may sound strange and foreign, it doesn't mean that God is simple in the sense of like easy to understand or simplistic. Um, Rather, it's an older term that means uh, God is without parts. He is not divided by parts. There's nothing that precedes him. Well, this becomes quite essential then in just confessing monotheism, but it also becomes essential for our doctrine of the Trinity, because what we are essentially saying is that Father, Son, and Spirit, these are not parts that we somehow tally up to make up God. Uh, That would be disastrous. We would start asking ourselves, well, which part is greater and which part is less? And Sometimes we actually think that way, which is not good, uh, as if there's a hierarchy in God. Well, simplicity helps us avoid that mistake. We are actually saying that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are one. And we could even add additional language here. How are they one? Uh, Well, it's not just that they get along or that they have different wills and they cooperate with one another. Again, that would fall terribly short. Rather, what we mean is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit— they are actually one in essence they are one in will they are one in power and glory so this is just one example of how some of this language it can feel foreign but it's absolutely essential to avoiding different types of heresies and being faithful to orthodoxy
0: so kind of on the other side of that though we talk about the oneness of god the one essence the one will but then on the other side of it we also talk about the threeness of god in the sense of father son and holy spirit so what differentiates these different persons and maybe held as how is the language of persons being used differently um, in some of these ancient creeds and these ancient documents, rather than kind of the modern understanding of person, which I think kind of help, it really confuses us, I think, often when we talk about persons, we think of individuals. We think of individuals with certain will, not just roles, not just actions, but also just whole beings. There's individual beings um, in terms of a person. And so I think some of that language confuses us when we're talking about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, but kind of speak to us a little bit about the threeness of God.
1: Well, you're exactly right. I think your intuition uh, is exactly right, because uh, oftentimes we, we can all make this mistake, right? We, we understand that, okay, you're a person, I'm a person, we go to church and we see all kinds of people, and we just assume, well, Father, Son, Spirit, they must just be persons as like we are persons, right? Um, here we are on this podcast you have your own will, I have my own will, you have your own consciousness, I have my own consciousness. Uh, But nonetheless, we are cooperating with one another um, in order to to make this conversation happen. Well, if we just assume, or if we actually apply that to the Trinity, we would end up in tritheism with three gods, because we don't actually move beyond uh, three individuals who are separate uh, and not merely distinct from one another. So, Again, this is where we have to be really careful that we don't just assume um, the way that things work in our society. Well, that just must be we, – we don't want to just apply that straight onto God. So how then do we think about um, the threeness and the trinity? Uh, again, it's not actually as foreign as we might assume. Uh, you think, for example, of the Gospel of John. And one of the things I love about John's Gospel – is that John is quite eager to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, something that many Christians learn very early on. You think of John 3.16, for example. However, it's important to ask ourselves, well, what is John assuming um, when he gets to that gospel? Well, there's actually three chapters before that in which he says, uh, this is the Son. Yes, we're going to talk about uh, this Jesus who is your Savior, But John's eager to also talk about Jesus as the son of God. And so right from the beginning of John's gospel, he wants to distinguish the son. And how is he going to do that? Well, even the names themselves give it away. Uh, He is a son, uh, which means he must have a father, right? And even when Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit, well, he's not a second son, uh, this is the spirit and so we're given these names right away in scripture as we come into contact with the gospel itself and what are these names meant to communicate well uh the very language of sonship we don't need to overthink it right it means that if he's a son then he is from a father and we might call that uh, a type of begetting or we could use the word generation in which a father begets or generates uh, his son but Right away, John uh, reminds us in the opening chapter, this is not just like any type of begetting. <laughs> and uh, John uses that language. He uses the language of begotten, the, the only begotten son. Uh, immediately, he reminds us, no, this is the eternal son. And so it's not like our human experience in which I'm a son and I have my own father and he, wants, he, he was a son and he once had a father. Rather, this is this is the eternal trinity, and so we can say things like, well, this Son, yes, he's begotten from his Father, but he is eternally begotten from the Father. Uh, there never was a point at which the Father was not Father and the Son was not Son. Well, we could talk about, you know, a, a thousand implications that follow from that, but right away— I think what we have to be clear about is that this alone distinguishes the Son as Son, rather than trying to look to some other concept or import something from our own human
0: experience. Well, I think that's really helpful to kind of give us kind of a basic framework for kind of understanding not only the oneness of God, but kind of the threeness of God. And one of the things that you do in the book that I think is really helpful is, um, and really the blessing of your writing is that you help to connect a lot of these contemporary questions and conversations back to the, some of these ancient documents. You talk about uh, the dream team. So obviously the dream team and basketball that a lot of listeners may be familiar with, but you speak of the dream team in terms of the team that's helping us to kind of get back to that orthodox understanding of God. Some of these ancient writers, ancient theologians and philosophers. Uh, so can you introduce us to a couple of these dream team members and why they're so important in the history of the doctrine of the Trinity and understanding it? today?
1: Well, i love to. And the Dream Team is really one of those uh, opportunities for me to connect two loves (laughs) in my life. Uh, One is basketball. Uh, I just love the game of basketball. And so uh, anyone who's followed the game knows that there's that unsurpassable Dream Team back in the day. Uh, You think of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Uh, There's this young rookie... Uh, who's super cocky by the name of Michael Jordan. <laughs> Maybe some people have heard of him. Well, I use this as, a, as really an opportunity uh, to introduce the dream team of what I call the dream team of the Trinity. And w- the reason I'm doing this is because, well, it's fun, of course, but more than that, it's an opportunity to exercise that humility we talked about, right? Uh, if we're going to understand the doctrine of the Trinity in a way that's not heretical but orthodox, then we probably need help, (laughs) and maybe a lot of help, not just from one or two individuals, but from an entire team uh, of players that have thought long and hard about what the Scriptures say about the Trinity. And so I introduce right away individuals like Athanasius or Augustine. Uh, I talk about a group of three known as the Cappadocians, uh, Basil of Caesarea, uh, Gregory of Nisa, Gregory of Nazianzus, and I even move us into a whole bunch of others, such as uh, Anselm and Thomas Aquinas and more. So I think people will, will really enjoy this part of the book. Uh, one of the reasons I mention them is because early on, they not only give us a language that helps us stay faithful to the Trinity of the Bible, but they do so in a way that really cannot be improved uh, and so we were just talking uh, a minute ago about you know this doctrine of eternal generation well as they start to distinguish the persons of the Trinity they want to do so in a way that is faithful to the simplicity or the unity and equality of the persons but also they are careful to distinguish the three persons and they and so they use language, uh, to describe what we just talked about from the Gospel of John. They'll say, well, uh, how do we distinguish these three persons? Well, there must be eternal relations of origin. Uh, and that sounds complicated, I know, but it's actually, it means what it what it sounds like. By relation of origin, they don't mean relationships like, like we think of, you know, how do we interact, but rather they are referring to um, what is the Son's origin? Well, his relation of origin is from eternity and it's defined by the fact that he is the son who's begotten from the father. What about the holy spirit? Well, then they go on to say, well, the spirit's relation of origin is from the father and the son, but he's not a another son. He proceeds. He is spirated from the father and the son in a way that distinguishes the third person of the trinity. So, all that to say, so much of their contribution is language itself. And that this type of language helps the church at the time stay say faithful uh, to orthodoxy in the midst of, of so, so much temptation to go in the direction of heresy.
0: Yeah, one of the figures you mentioned, um, not only mentioned just now, but even mentioned in the book, is St. Thomas Aquinas. And obviously, within Protestantism, there's been significant debate um, over St. Thomas Aquinas and his uh, the value of his works. Maybe today for Protestants specifically, given his connections and kind of his theology, in many ways undergirds a lot of the Roman Catholic teachings. Um, And so, many Protestants kind of outright reject Thomas um not really wanting to either read him or just to argue that his thoughts aren't very helpful or formative for Protestants because we had to make obviously that big shift in terms of the reformation so but i also as uh, as a protestant have really benefited from aquinas when you actually go read aquinas in his own words um, sometimes you're actually shocked at how orthodox he is, um, given some of the caricatures of him. Um, I've noticed that, especially in some of my work on natural law, going back to read him and uh, what he's actually saying in terms of natural law, you're surprised of the emphasis on scripture, the emphasis on the divine law, the, the sinfulness and brokenness of man's reason and will and desires. And some of these caricatures don't actually hold up when you go back and read some of the original sources and so I just wanted to see if you could kind of elaborate on a little bit, specifically with Aquinas, maybe some of the controversies, maybe specifically with the doctrine of the Trinity, but even broader kind of theologically, some of the controversies, but why he's such an important figure for us to read, especially as Protestants.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up Thomas Aquinas. I think just based on what you just said, it sounds like you are you also have realized uh, yeah, some of the, the initial reaction against Thomas is, is more built on caricatures than the truth. <laughs> and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think one of the reasons is we have not understood history very well. We have assumed the Reformation is a reaction against Thomas Aquinas when it's actually not. It's not that the Reformers didn't dis- never had disagreements with Thomas Aquinas. They did. Uh, but actually the Reformation is reacting to, on the whole, is reacting to something much later than Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is living during the um, the classic high period of scholastic uh, theology, uh, which some call uh, a much purer period than what comes later, right on the eve of the Reformation, which is a late medieval scholasticism, which actually goes against Thomas Aquinas, and that's where it actually provokes Reformation, and so um, a lot of what the Reformers are responding to, you think of Martin Luther, for example, in 1517, his disputation, he's actually reacting to some late medieval scholastics like William of Ockham and Gabriel Beale, uh, not so much Thomas Aquinas. Uh, the other thing I will say is, <laughs> I say this from experience, but there are so many others who can testify this to this as well. It is often the case that those who are reacting against Thomas Aquinas have never read him. And even from your own comment, yeah, I I find that often to be the case is when people actually go and read them, they go, oh, (laughs) uh, there is tons here that I agree with. Yes, certainly there are areas I'm going to disagree with. But when it comes to his doctrine of the Trinity, to his Christology, he could not be more orthodox. In fact, I would go so far to say that Thomas Aquinas is more orthodox on the doctrine of God and Christology than some contemporary evangelicals today. That's a huge. That's a huge reason to say, okay, let's have a little humility and let's go back and listen to what he says because he thought about uh, the Trinity and Christology in a way that was extremely faithful, um, not just to you know, the the Council of Nicaea, but to Scripture itself. The other thing I'll mention is it is a bit weird that some Protestants today are suspicious of Thomas Aquinas, uh, because when you go back to our Protestant fathers of the uh, late 16th century and certainly the 17th century, on the whole, they interacted, engaged and retrieve Thomas Aquinas in countless ways. So this conversation would be so puzzling, maybe a bit disturbing to them, because whether it's the Trinity or Christology, or like you mentioned, I know you're an ethicist, uh, natural law and virtue, they found in Thomas, well, they found him to be very, very helpful and reliable. Didn't mean they didn't have disagreements uh, on issues of soteriology like do we believe in imputation or infusion in terms of the doctrine of justification, or in terms of ecclesiology? Um, do we believe in transubstantiation? Yes, they were not afraid to critique Thomas. So this is why uh, I love to point people back to our Protestant uh, forefathers, uh, from you know individuals like Martin Bootser, the reformer or Peter Martyr Vermigli. Uh, to um, Francis Turretin, or one of my favorites is John Owen, the Puritan, you will be pleasantly surprised to discover they are interacting with Thomas or doing what I call a critical appropriation of Thomas. Yes, they're critical of him at times, but they are actually standing on his shoulders in countless ways that we could benefit from today.
0: Yeah, so one of the things we've done throughout the podcast so far— Um, is talking the nature of, you know, obviously the nature of the Trinity and the doctrine of God. But at times we've kind of hinted at not only does this apply in ethics or in terms of philosophy or in terms of other fields of theology. Um, So one of the questions I wanted to ask you as we start to end our time today here on the podcast Is its connections, the doctrine of the Trinity and its connections to anthropology, understanding what does it mean to be human? Many have rightfully said uh, that what does it mean to be human is one of the most important questions we can ask today, especially in kind of modern, postmodern society, wherever you map us on that modern spectrum. Um, But there's a questioning of what does it mean to be human? And so we see that play out in sexuality. We see this play out in gender issues. We see this play out in the abortion issue. We see this play out in a host of different ethical issues. And so getting back to what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, to understand ourselves in light of scripture, we have to understand who God is. And so I kind of wanted to pose that question to you. That's an area that I focus on a lot with theological anthropology, but kind of understanding What connections are there between theological anthropology and the doctrine of the God as seen in the triune nature of God? Kind of how do we maybe see these things as overlapping or kind of corresponding if we are indeed made in God's image and God is indeed the triune God? What implications does that have on our anthropology?
1: Well, it's an important question to answer, and I'm going to start off by saying something more negative. But I promise I'll turn the corner here and say something quite positive and encouraging. The first thing I want to say is, and I really begin my book this way, my book simply Trinity. I start off talking about uh, a bad experience I've (laughs) had, and and it's this: when we look at the countless books published on the Trinity. In the 20th century, what we discover is something I think that it's it's a bit disturbing. We have not gone the route of defining the Trinity in term in, in orthodox language, uh, such as the Nicene Creed. Uh, rather, so many modern theologians, to one degree or another, have gone the direction of a what we would call a social. Trinitarianism. And uh, what does this mean? Well, I, I devote a whole chapter or two in the book, so, so you can read more about it there. But essentially, uh, we, we even mentioned it already, rather than defining the Trinity how we have, uh, the temptation is to define the Trinity more in terms of individuals, uh, individuals with their own wills, individuals with their own centers of consciousness. And, and so, not surprisingly, some of the challenge here has been, well, how do you avoid tritheism? And uh, oftentimes with social Trinitarianism, there's a bit of suspicion or outright rejection of of the Trinity's uh, simplicity. And I could go on and on. In fact, I even give a whole chart of, of ways that kind of contemporary social uh, Trinitarian thought is defined by certain marks uh, like the ones I just mentioned. But one of the implications that comes from this is once the Trinity is redefined in this way, it becomes all too easy to use and I think abuse the Trinity, use the Trinity for any number, sometimes even contradictory social agendas. And so, you know, in the 20th century, you have someone like Jurgen Moltmann, one of the most influential modern theologians. Uh, who's very transparent that he's going in the direction of a social trinity and uh, based on the social equality that he sees in that definition of the trinity, he is then saying, well, this trinity is the model and paradigm and prototype then for society. And for him, for Moltmann, that means all kinds of things. It means everything from feminism to uh, socialism and politics and so much more. And then you'll have others disagreeing with him but still inter- still, you know, making their, their uh, assessment based on the social paradigm. Uh, what I found after studying this for so long is that case after case after case, as long as they're operating with a social understanding of the trinity, they are using this trinity for just about every social agenda under the sun. Uh, sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's gender debates. I've seen it used for environmental debates. The list is truly and uh, some some will use this for debates over church polity. Uh, the list is really endless. So that's the negative thing I want to say is we do need to be careful because there's a, a long history in the last hundred years where we've've we've, I would say at times we've even manipulated the Trinity um, to meet these social agendas. Now that said, I think there is something very positive to say. And it's this. Once we understand the Trinity in a biblical and orthodox way, it puts us in a better position to not try to force ourselves to imitate the Trinity as if the Trinity has to become, you know, forced into this mold to become the paradigm for for whatever our social interest is at that moment. Uh, But as one author has said, it actually liberates us to say Well, we don't have to force ourselves into imitating this trinity because we've been given the opportunity to participate in this trinity, which is so much deeper. What does that mean? Well, some of the greatest theologians on the doctrine of the trinity have said, you know, theologians like John Owen have said, well, if this is who the triune God is, then in terms of living the Christian life, which certainly involves virtue and ethics— it means that we can actually have communion with the entire Trinity, um, so that whenever we are brought into communion with one person of the Trinity, we actually experience an influence of the whole Trinity. And at the same time, everything from living the Christian life to prayer itself, to worship, we can actually have communion with each person of the Trinity. And uh, Paul spoke this way in some of his letters, where he said, well, we have communion with the Father according to his unbelievable love for us, and we have communion with the Son uh, by means of his grace, and of course we have communion with the, with the Holy Spirit by virtue of the Spirit's comfort and consolation for us. Well, when we think of the Trinity through that lens, all of a sudden, the Trinity uh, is quite applicable then to what it means to live in the image of God Uh, It's quite applicable then to living the Christian life. Uh, What could be more essential right, to following God than actually having communion with this God and participating in this God? And ultimately, I would say, it should affect, it should even affect not just our Christian life but our eschatology. What is our greatest hope? I would argue that our greatest hope, and really the whole purpose of theology, is the beatific vision. Well, that beatific vision has everything to do with the Trinity, so that when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's laying out an ethic in these beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, what is the promise he says they will receive? They will see God, Uh, an unbelievable promise. Well, that is only possible because of the Holy Trinity, that the Son himself has been our mediator so that by the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ and receive all the grace and love that the Father has in store for us. And one day that will come to its fullness as we actually see God. I think this is one of the reasons why in John's first epistle, he can lay out this promise of the beatific vision, and then he he turns right around and he gives them an ethical paradigm and command. He says to them, so be holy. If you're going to see the Holy One, the Holy Trinity itself, well, then what are you to do right now? You are actually to pursue holiness. How are you going to do that?
0: Look at your Savior, Christ Jesus. Yeah, you've really set me up there because that's one of the big things that I talk about. We've talked a lot about here on the podcast and especially in my writings, as well as the relationship of theology and ethics and how inextricably linked they are together. And so we won't go down that rabbit trail uh, because that could take another podcast. But I know for me personally, and I think for listeners as well, this has been a really enriching conversation and a really fulfilling conversation, kind of diving into the depths, kind of the, the way back home, as you say in the book, kind of way back home to this orthodox understanding of God. And you do so through some of these older figures. And so Traditionally, in the podcast, when we're ending, we always talk about some recommended resources. In your case, specifically, given that you talked about the dream team and some of these older works, and we've talked about the value of these older works, I want to pose that question to you, because I think some listeners may say, yeah, that's great. I have no idea where to start. And it seems incredibly overwhelming. And, you know, magically picking up kind of that rough and tumble version of um, Calvin's Institutes that you talked about may not happen for the rest of us. Or we pick it up and it's such a wooden translation that we can't understand it. Um, so where would you say, for listeners' sake, that who maybe are starting off on this, what is what are one or two or three works that you would recommend them picking up uh, that would encourage them that something that maybe is approachable? rather than maybe kind of overwhelming and super deep to where they wouldn't understand it, but a good kind of jumping off point if they want to dive into some of these topics.
1: You know, I, I completely understand that intimidation. And let me just say to listeners, if you feel that, um, you know, don't, don't give in to thinking, well, I can never study the doctrine of the Trinity. You will miss out on so, so many of the riches of the Christian life. So yes, I would absolutely encourage listeners to not just read contemporary books, especially in light of (laughs) some of the wordings I gave in our time together, but but go back like C.S. Lewis recommended. Go back to the old books, and I think you will find there maybe some some more trustworthy guides to the doctrine of the Trinity. Where do you begin? That's a big question, right? Well, I think that the first thing you should do is – is actually, here's the beauty of modern technology, <laughs> uh, to, to go on to Google and to just Google the Nicene Creed. Uh, I have my students memorize it in class, but there is no reason why you cannot read it or even say it as a church, uh, which I encourage churches to do more and more these days. It is only a couple paragraphs long. You could read it in five minutes and I think you will have more to contemplate in reading it in five minutes for the next months to come than you will in in reading you know some five hundred page book. Uh, it's a faithful guide. It also will help you connect the Trinity to your own salvation and what you believe as a Christian and as a church. Because remember, this is this is not something secondary. Secondary, we are talking about. We are talking about the Trinity, which is which is could not be more important to what it means to be a Christian. Now, that said, after you've read the Nicene Creed, I've, I would encourage you to do uh, a couple things if you're feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm ready for something more. <laughs> I would encourage you to pick up a little book that I mentioned already by Athanasius called On the Incarnation. Uh, it's very small, and uh, you will get the get the version that has the, in, the, the little preface by C.S. Lewis, and uh, read through this because Athanasius will focus mostly on the incarnation itself, but he will start to draw your attention to the doctrine of the Trinity. And then, when you're done, I would encourage you to pick up another little book uh, by another church father, Gregory of Nazianzus. It, it has a blue cover. It's a little paperback called "On God and Christ." On God and Christ. And these were actually orations and sermons that Gregory delivered to, to the church in which he is articulating some of the, the tough parts of the doctrine of the Trinity. We mentioned in our time together the doctrine of eternal generation. What does that mean? Well, Gregory is going to have a lot to say about it and why it's so important. And then I would say if you get through all that and you're, you are you still are hungry for more, <laughs> um, and, I, and, and you, you, I haven't intimidated you too much, I would encourage you to actually pick up an entire book on the doctrine of the Trinity. A couple of names that can help you here. There's a church father by the name of Hilary, Hilary of Poitiers, who wrote an entire book on the Trinity. Augustine is another church father who wrote an entire book on the Trinity. And if you want someone who's going to connect the Trinity To the Christian life and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to actually come into communion with this Trinity, well, I have to recommend the Puritan John Owen, his book, Communion with God or Communion with the Trinity.
0: Well, for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes, um, as well as your book, uh, Simply Trinity, which is an excellent resource for folks who are kind of wanting to get their bearings, kind of orient themselves to this historic understanding of the Trinity. But Dr. Barrett, I thank you so much, not only for your work. Um, that is very approachable and accessible, uh, which is something that is hard, is not always said about theological works. Um, it's something that uh, you, I know that takes extra effort on your part, so thank you for that. And I really do appreciate the time that we've had today here on the podcast. It's been a really thrilling conversation, so I'm glad you could join us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I uh, love what you're doing there, and so glad we got to talk about this today.
0: Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Barrett and learn more about his work, as well as the recommended resources that we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest news from the public square. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hainer and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.